to date, we have um, covered a list of prayers, different kinds of prayers, and we have practiced some of them, and I'm looking very much forward to our next, uh, what used to be called song sing. We used to call it song sing, but we're going to change it. We're going to call it family prayer and worship. Because I want to encourage people, no matter how bad your singing is, God wants you to sing to Him. We are, as a church, we are a sitting body. We are the bride of Christ who sing to Him. We pray. And so once a month, we're going to get together here on a Thursday night, and we're going to do just that. Delegate some of these different prayers, the prayer of repentance to one of the elders in training, and prayer of thanksgiving to the other, and their adoration to another, and consecration to another. And then we're also going to pray the Lord's Prayer. But beyond that, we're going to worship Him, and then we're also going to fellowship. So don't miss that when it comes around. So we've, uh, like I mentioned, we started with a prayer of repentance because that's the way we come to God. Usually, when you come to God and He accepts you, your natural response would be to thank Him. So we learned the prayer of thanksgiving. Because in the prayer of repentance, we learned the difference between Judas and David. The one praying the prayer of attrition, Judas. Sorrow. He had worldly sorrow, the Bible says, that is sorrowful for what he had done to himself. David had contrition. He was sorrowful because of what he had done to God. David truly repented. Judas had a false repentance. It leads to self-abandonment and he committed suicide. We learned the prayer of thanksgiving, which David was fantastic at doing. That's why you need to have a prayer Bible where you can take a marker or highlight it and highlight all the Thanksgiving Psalms and pray them. Psalms aren't only to be sung, they're also to be prayed. After which, I encourage you to take a different color marker and mark all of the adoration verses within Psalms and learn to adore God through the Psalms. You cannot adore God if you do not know the attributes, the character, and the nature of God. That's why it's important for us to learn what the attributes of God are. So that when we have a high view of God, we can have a high level of adoration of Him. You cannot have a high level of adoration for a God whose attributes, nature, and character you are unfamiliar with. You can't say, oh, you are so mighty when you don't know what that necessarily means. Right? We have to learn what it means uh, that God has attributes. That God's character is perfect. And... The holiness of God. And then we learned the prayer of consecration, which is where we go from our minds to our eyes to our mouth to our heart to our hands and our feet when we consecrate our lives to Him. Why? Because this is, in fact, our most basic mode of worship. The Bible says in Romans, I beseech you, therefore, brothers, not to conform to the ways of this world, but be ye transformed. Right? By the renewing of your mind. But in that portion, he says, Now give your bodies as a living sacrifice, for this is your reasonable worship unto God. Today, if you say to people, Hey, listen, you belong to God, He purchased you, you are not your own, you are simply a um, steward over these hands and feet that you have, you are a steward over the heartbeat that you have, because it could stop at any moment. And every heartbeat that you have, every mode that you have, every ability that you have, every skill that you have, every opportunity in your life, you are only there to steward over it. What is a steward? It's somebody who manages somebody else's estate on their behalf. That is a steward. And so you are managing God's property on His behalf. And when you say that to somebody, they're like, well, I'm also, you know, that's kind of like radical Christianity, isn't it? Well, Paul, in the book of Romans, said, this is your reasonable worship. This is, this is a starting point. Giving yourself to God as a living sacrifice. And that is the prayer of consecration. Then we started talking through the Lord's Prayer, which is so powerful and important to understand. And um, we talked about what it means to pray, hallowed be your name. That your name, God, be honored in this life, my life, in my family, 
and the concentric circles go out and out. And we believe that God's name is going to be honored in the whole world, every nation, every tongue, and every tribe. That God be honored in our nation, that God be honored in our schools, that God be honored um, in, in, in our homes, of course, in our families. God, I pray that you be honored, that your name be revered. That's so interesting that we would get upset when we see the Hollywood disrespect the name of the Lord, and we should. But do we pray God's name be honored? Prayer is God meet God's means through which that is going to be accomplished. Otherwise, we wouldn't have asked you to pray it. Somebody said to me, uh, why are you so contentious? <laughs> I don't find myself to be contentious. But I love how Calvin said, and I'm, and I'm saying that only because when you listen to Hollywood and you get so riled up, I mean, you got riled up over the over the what happened during the Super Bowl with that stupid, uh, yeah, that stupid ad they had. He gets us. Funded by oh yeah, oh oh. So, why do you get angry? Why do you get so mad? Somebody asked you, why are you so contentious over it? But I found this quote by John Calvin that explains it really well. He says, even a dog barks when his master is a sailor. So you and I, we are contentious for the same reason dogs bark. <laughs> We're right, we speak for the same reason dogs bark. Do not, like this one friend of mine, Atheist, he's always saying some really atheistic stuff. But when he started saying that Jesus was a guru, I like I couldn't, you know, like I have wait, wait a minute, I'm gonna have to bark over this issue. <laughs> so we pray, Hallowed be your name, and then we pray your kingdom come. Where? On earth. In what way? As it is in heaven. We pray that and we believe that it will happen. And today we are getting to verse 11 where it says, Give us this day our daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. And then we're also going to cover the next line where we, are pray where we have to pray and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Forgive those who sin against us as we forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. But let's go back to give us this day our daily bread. This is us asking God for our physical needs and our spiritual food. That's what this is. We're asking God for our physical needs, our physical food, and our spiritual food. Now, in the Jewish custom, when they say bread, they were talking about the most basics. Give us what we need. Not all of the things we really want, but give us what you know we need. Now, I don't know if you've noticed, or if you realize, but every single prayer is always answered 100%. Somebody goes, no, that's not true. I asked God for a wife, he didn't give me one. Well, he, he answered you, didn't he? <laughs> you didn't know it's also an answer. We have to ask according to his will. And here we ask, give us this day our daily bread, which is viewed as both physical and spiritual. The bread of life is Jesus. They received manna from heaven, which was a type of who Jesus was going to be for us. That spiritual bread that sustains us. But it's also physical and actual. We have to ask God to keep on supplying for us our need. You know, Matthew 4, 4, it says, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. That is how you live. From every word that you read, because that is what comes from God. God already knows what you need. The Bible says, even before you ask Him, He knows. He says, but therefore, pray and ask me. Isn't that strange? <laughs> Listen, Pam, I know what you need, so why don't you come and ask me for it? <laughs> but God does this for a very good reason he wants to remind you 
who your provider is. He wants to remind you that you are dependent upon Him. He wants to remind you that it was Him who supplied and provided on a daily basis. So what is it that you and I need? What is it that we need? We need enough provision to sustain our own households, ourselves and our household. How do I know this? Because the Bible teaches that the one who doesn't provide for his own house is worse than an unbeliever. So I need to do this because this is what you called me to do. Therefore, I need what I need in order to fulfill that responsibility. However, we are also commanded not only to love our own, but we also commanded to love our neighbors and even our enemies. So how are we going to do that if we have only enough for ourselves? So we will need enough to provide not only for our household, but to also bless our neighbors, to bless even our en enemies at times, and to give to the poor and to the work of the Lord. This is part of the Lord's prayer, and this is how we ought to pray it, therefore. I want to give you an example. It goes like <coughs> something like this. Father, I ask you for my daily provision, knowing that I depend on you for it. That's why I come to you asking you for it on a daily basis because I daily depend on you. I daily receive from you. Just like they depended on you daily for man and the desert, I am daily depending on you to provide for me. However, God, please give me my daily bread, which is both physical and spiritual. Provide for me all my needs, whether it be transport, I pray, for my family so I can care for them, a home so I can so I can give them a, a roof, food and clothes. Father God, I pray. But also, Lord, give me insight into your will. Give me insight into your word. Give me that spiritual bread because I cannot live on bread alone, but I live off of your word also. Please provide sufficient amount of bread for me, my family, and those you need me to give to. In Jesus' name, amen. Now that's kind of like the prayer most people, all of us, are very used to asking God for stuff. And it's in the Lord's Prayer. <clears throat> but it's asking for more than what you need. Because you also are used by God to fill the need of another. Somebody said, hey, God bless me. Oh my goodness, God came through for me. He... Uh, I needed, I needed that $100, and somebody walked up to me and gave me $100. Isn't that amazing? I'm going to look like that from now on. I'm just going to believe God to bring me the next $100. I'm just going to believe God to bring me the next $100. That's right. My faith is so strong. How about this? How about you become the person God can use to help this poor moron? <laughs> Bryce, how about you become the person... God can use to become the blessing that He wants to bless another person with, right? So this is what we're asking God for right there. You ought to never believe just for yourself. Because if you just believe for yourself, you are not believing for God to use you. Now let's move to the next verse, Matthew 6, 12. It says, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Now I would like for us to take time out. We wanted to do this for a long time. And that is to bring clarity regarding the issue of sin. Forgive us our sin as we forgive those who sinned against us. We really need clarity regarding this because in our culture, people have this ability to amplify and magnify somebody else's mistake and view it as a sin, yet their own, they look beyond and they have a blind, they turn a blind eye too. That's why Jesus said, hey, before you take the splinter out of your brother's eye, take the log out of your own. But we don't necessarily view ourselves as having a log in our eye. We don't view ourselves to be sinners. 
we don't view ourselves as those with sufficient amount of faults that had we not been forgiven, we would, we would in fact deserve hell forever. So we have to talk about this sin issue which we really are more guilty for than what we realize. In 1 John 1 verse 8, John says this, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we say we have no sin, we deceived. And who deceived us? We did. If you walk around in public and you ask people, hey, do you want me to pray with you and ask God to forgive you for your sin? They would ask, they would respond, how? Like what sin? <laughs> what do you have on me? Because yeah. <laughs> I don't think you know any. <laughs> no, everybody has sin. <laughs> and so in 1 John 1 it says, just two verses later, if we say that we have not sinned, we make God a liar. And his word is not us. Those people who go like, I already have sinned, God, you making God out to be a liar because God said, yes, you do. All right. So what is it when you say sin? What is it? And how much of it do we have? Well, we have to go back to the definition of the word sin, which means missing the mark. Missing the mark. It's like when you're taking, when you're taking the shooting a bow and arrow, you know, you usually have the circles. And to targets. miss the circle, you miss targets, the mark. Targets. Huh? targets. Targets. Target, thank you. You missed the target. I was playing darts yesterday with Gia, and when I, and when I miss the board altogether, <laughs> I miss the target, right? So you might ask, okay, well, then what is this mark? What is this target that I'm supposed to not miss? Because every time I miss it, I sin. Well, let's look at it this way. You were created by God in His own image. All right? You were made by Him with a purpose. A purpose. And that is to reflect <laughs> His image in this earth. That's why He made you the way you are. That's why you are not an animal. Well. <laughs> no, there's a difference between you and an animal. You and a chimpanzee and a monkey. <coughs> I'm just wondering why, if we saw that much the same, why is there no development in that kingdom of America? <laughs> none, none of them have ever kind of like developed anything, you know? Um, you reason. You're rational. They're not. You have a conscience. They don't. There are many differences between you and animal. But God made you different in this that he gave you his image. It's on you. And he placed you in this earth so that his image is reflected there on earth. That is our purpose. The mark is to reflect God for who he is, not to misrepresent him for who he is. Not to reflect something else, but to reflect him. If you reflect something other than God in a situation, you're not reflecting Him, you are misrepresenting Him, you've missed the mark, target altogether. That's sin. So every one of our deeds, every one of our actions, every one of our passions, every one of our thoughts, because remember now, we're reasoning beings. We, 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 uh, this is why we are different than animals. We are like God who has passions. We are like God who has a sense of morality. And when we, we when every, every one of our deeds, actions and motives and passions and thoughts, when they do not perfectly reflect him for who he is, we've missed that mark, even if it's with an inch. And if you're from the Roman background, a Catholic background, you would view that as not much in comparison to the other guy that missed that mark with a mile, right? Venial, you're like, you have all these different degrees of sin. Thank God I'm not so far out as those are. No, a sin is a sin. 
And the Bible's clear. If you break the law at any point, you're guilty of it all. Right? You don't get away with it. If you throw a small rock through a glass window, or if you throw a massive rock through a glass window, that window breaks. Whether it's a small sin or a big sin, you've broken the law. And so, our deeds, actions, motives, and passions, our thoughts, our intentions, ought to reflect Him. And if they don't, we've missed the mark and we've sinned. I want to show you something that's fascinating. In regards to the law, some people read the law and they see the law as God being a killjoy. You may not. Oh, really? You shall not. Wow, killjoy, man. He's such a tyrant. Right? But the interesting thing about the law is that God said or gave you a command because that command is in fact when obey a reflection of his character. For instance, he said do not lie. He didn't come up with this rule because he thought that it would be a bad idea if people start lying to each other. That's not why he did it. He said do not lie because he is the truth. So when you, when you repent from lying and you become truthful, you are now being that image that reflects inaccurately. He said, be holy. Not because he's trying to keep you out of the clubs. No, he said, be holy because that is what he is, holy. I don't want to trivialize it, but... Holiness, of course, has two meanings. Number one, separate unto. In other words, don't be part of the world system. Separate unto God. My shoe is holy to my foot. It doesn't have, my shoe doesn't have an agenda of its own. It's actually there, and my foot is its agenda. If you are holy unto God, God is your agenda. You are separated unto Him, not to the world, to yourself, whatever else. Secondarily, the secondary definition of holiness is moral superiority. Moral superiority. Did I just say something different? What is that word? Superior, no, moral perfection, sorry. <laughs> I just, I'm gonna blame Jason, I looked at him in distress. Moral perfection, Jason. Moral perfection. So when he said, be holy, be separated unto. Be holy, be morally perfect. Was because that's who he is and he's calling you to reflect him as he is in heaven. Do so here on earth. And when we're not, we're missing that mark. When he said, be merciful, it's because he's merciful, that's why he made that command. Commandments are there as a reflection of who he is as a person, his character. So when I'm not able to obey his word, I'm not able to submit to his commandments, then I have missed the mark and I failed to reflect him as I should. I did not reflect his character, I reflected my broken character. In Mark 12 verse 30 it says, and You shall love the Lord your God. So I'm just building a case to prove to you. You and I both need to pray this prayer. God, forgive me of my sin. People don't pray it because they don't believe they've sinned. They don't believe they've sinned because they don't believe they've missed a mark. When in fact, they have completely missed the dark board altogether, not knowing it. So here's my next point is that in Mark 12, 30, it says, And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. Christian, do you love God as much as you ought to? Do you love God with all of your heart? All of your heart. All of the time. If not, you've missed the mark. You've said, it just told you, love the Lord your God with all of your heart. Not sometimes, he implies all the time. Yes. 
just to be very honest with you, do you sometimes go, do I love God? <laughs> Have you ever asked yourself that question? I'm not so sure because I'm not burning hot for God right now. Anybody with me? Yep. You're like sometimes, am I, 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 Lord, I love you. I know I do right now I feel nothing. Anybody? <laughs> Love the Lord your God with all of your heart. Well, you can go to the next one, with all of your soul. Is that true for your will, your mind, and your emotions? Is that true? No, it's not. We miss the mark. Love the Lord your God with all of your mind. This is a big one. Second thing. All the time? Do you love God with all of your thoughts all the time? No. No, you cannot love God perfectly. You love him imperfectly. He loves you perfectly. And because we don't, we sit. We miss the mark. We don't reflect him as we ought to. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, watch this, do it all for the glory of God. <laughs> My question is, are you sure... When you had that Friday night pizza, did you do that for the glory of God? I want to know. I bet you it didn't cross anybody's mind. But when you eat or drink, whatever it is you're eating or drinking, can you do? Are you doing this for God's glory? I don't know. The the the, the order is so tall. That's a, such a tall order. This is why we say that it's impossible. And the disciples <laughs> said to Jesus, "Well, who then can be saved?" Jesus answered, he says, what is impossible for man is possible with God. Man will miss that mark so far. He's become so callous towards the fact that he does. Kind of writes it off. We have lost the ability for our consciences to be pricked over the amount of sin we commit constantly on a daily basis. We don't even have a conscience toward that anymore because we've lost the, we, it's no longer in our view as to how far and how much we have sinned and fallen short of God, the glory of God. The fact is, you and I, we do not do anything perfectly. We don't do anything perfectly. Again, Charles Spurgeon, somebody, somebody speaks ill of you. Don't be angry with him. You are much worse than he thinks. If he thinks you're bad, trust me, he doesn't realize how bad you truly are. So just relax. <laughs> the fact is, you and I don't do anything perfectly. We don't love perfectly. We don't follow Christ perfectly. We don't repent perfectly. Here's the big one. You don't believe perfectly. The truth is, we cannot wrap our minds around uh, this massive mountain of sins that we commit on a daily basis. It's just too big. It's just too much. Um, there's, there's not one fraction of confidence I have before God of my life when I stand before Him. It is all Christ. This is how you repent. You take every single one of your sins. You throw it on a mountain. A mountain of sin. Then you take every single one of your good deeds. And you throw it on that mountain. And then you say, God, forgive me. And you walk away from it. Because sometimes, you know, we repent for the things we know we shouldn't have done. If you have a healthy conscience, you know that. You see, the person... The person with a broken conscience is the person that drops his Bible and he feels guilty over it. Strikes his heart, oh, I dropped the Bible. But he never feels guilty for not reading it. He feels guilty for all the wrong things. But he has no guilt for the things he ought to feel guilty over. So what we need to do is we need to not only take all of our, our, our 
missing the marks, all of our sins, all of our flaws and our faults and our missteps and throw it on a mountain. We also have to throw all of our good deeds on there. Say, God, I repent from everyone. Not even they are perfect, number one, but number two, I repent from ever thinking I can be confident in front of you because of my good deeds. Self-righteousness is the one thing nobody ever uh, repents from. Because when you walk up to somebody, you say, hey, you know what? You need to really repent from self-righteousness. What? What are you saying? How dare you? <laughs> that would be the self-righteous response. So the truth is, we cannot wrap our minds around this massive mountain. But what I want to do is I want to throw on top of what we just discussed, because we discussed and how uh, we miss the law, how we miss God's character by misrep reflecting it accurately and how we cannot love perfectly or follow him perfectly or even believe perfectly or repent perfectly I want to go beyond that and I want to show you that we need to repent for even more beyond that for instance sin is when you do not honor God as he deserves to be honored we are here to honor him and when we don't honor him as we should, surely that's a missing the mark. That's a sin. Sin is when you do not revere his holiness as you ought to. We look at what's happening in here. You have the angels falling down, shouting, holy, holy, holy. You have the 24 elders following them, falling down, shouting, holy, holy, holy. And we're pretty much not there yet. <laughs> we don't quite revere God the way we ought to, right? I'll prove it to you. It's quite a revelation to me as to how if somebody had to say something nasty to my wife, it would kind of round me up or lie about her. I'd be, what? I would have to come to her defense. But do you see how little Christians really come to God's defense when he's misrepresented or slandered? In the world, we're like, well, those guys are those guys are in trouble with God. Hey, how about you? Why aren't they in trouble with you? Last one. Indifference. In other words, we don't revere His holiness as we ought to. We're somewhat indifferent to it. Sin is when you do not pursue the truth of God as your highest aim. You do not pursue the truth of God as your highest end. Sin is when you do not admire God's greatness as you should. You are not walking around all day long in awe of my <laughs> Wow, God, this is awesome. You are not taken by it. Indifference is sin that we ought to repent from. You see, the wisdom of God, sin is the wisdom of God, not esteemed. Sin is the beauty of God not admired and this is revealed in the fact that nobody's content with what they have or where they're at or who they're with it's like discontentment is the proof that the beauty of god is not admired in me i mean i'm living in this beautiful theater this this divine theater that god created the sun is rising look at the stars and Life is, life is amazing. The trees are coming back to life. That's an amazing thing. But indifference to it. On the contrary, we're extremely discontent with life. It's proof that God's beauty is not being admired by me. Sin is the promises of God not believed. Sin is the commandments of God not obeyed. But finally... I'll put another cherry on top of the cherry on top of the cake. Right? What if we were able to, some, to use some kind of advanced technology, which is probably going to happen pretty soon here, but where we could actually display your thoughts on these screens for all to see. Your thoughts that you had over the last 24 hours on these screens. Do you know what would happen? You would jump up in horror. <laughs> And you would run out here and never return. <laughs> That's what would happen. <laughs> and you walk up to somebody and you say, brother, it's time to repent. You go, from what? 
No. Sin flows from my life like a mighty river. Because sin isn't all the things I did I shouldn't. There's also, that's a sin of commission. How about the sin of omission? All the things God called me to do, yet I haven't done it. The attitudes I'm, I ought to have, the thoughts I ought to have, the motives, the intentions. Sin flows from our lives contrary to the image of God here in this earth. And we wonder why we need to pray forgive us our sins. So I hope that I've helped you in some small way clarifying the fact that, yeah, we're all sinners. All right? Thank you. Now, <laughs> you're welcome. Let's receive an offering, girls. <laughs> the difference is, you know, somebody says, like, well, I don't go to church. Those people, there's a bunch of hypocrites. They're hypocrites. The hypocrite's actually not the one going to church because he's the one who knows he needs it, right? He's the one who goes like, guilty. <laughs> I need forgiveness. I need mercy. The hypocrite's the guy that doesn't come because he believes he doesn't need it. That's the hypocrite. So, we're looking at this, at this portion of scripture where we are told to pray in this way, forgive us our debts, Matthew 6, 12. As we forgive our debtors, forgive our sins, God. They are many. They are constant. It's not, it won't stop. Forgive us this river, this mighty river of sin that flows from my life. God, forgive me as I forgive somebody else who talked about me two years ago. <laughs> you see... We don't forgive somebody because they stop talking about us. We forgive somebody for the little sin they've committed against us because we are being forgiven for this mighty river that flows from us of sin. This mighty river of sin that flows from us. Can you see what it is? That's why he gave us that example. He said this guy owed a million dollars. He goes before the judge. He begs the judge, please, give me time. Please. The judge says, you know what? I'll forgive you, your million dollars. Thank you, judge. He walks out of the courtroom. There's somebody else that owes him $10. He grabs the guy by the neck. He says, you will pay every penny. And if you don't have it, then I'll enslave your family until it's paid back to me. The judge hears about it. He goes, call that man back. He calls him back into the courtroom. The judge says, all the mercy you received, having cleared your record of wrongs, and you walked out here and you couldn't give a drop of mercy to the person who owed you 10 he says, I will reverse it all. I'll reverse it all. You now owe us a million dollars. And you will pay it back. And if you can't pay it back, you'll be a slave. That'll be your way of paying it back. But that's how we live. Because we, don't, we lose sight of the river of sin that constantly flows from us. We lose sight of the fact that God is constantly washing us of those sins. He's constantly forgiving you, but you struggle to forgive someone else. And the reason we struggle is because we lost sight of our sin and we're indignant over this person that won't change. Because he has hurt me, she has hurt me. And we've completely lost sight of the fact that we are committing injustices against the perfectly holy God. So here we, he says, okay, now pray and ask God to forgive you of your sins. But there's a rub here. There's a, there's, there's a mis, there's, what is this? Why do people struggle with this? And I'll tell you why, because I struggled with this for a long time. Colossians 2.13, look at this quick. It says, and you, who were dead in your trespasses, past tense, you were dead, you were dead in your trespasses, and in the circumcision of your flesh, God made alive. God made you alive together with Christ. And here it is. Having forgiven us all our trespasses. Having forgiven us all our trespasses. See, I'm forgiven. Why must I ask for forgiveness? I'm already told that I have been forgiven. 
Why must I keep on asking God to forgive me if he forgave me? For instance, didn't Christ declare it is finished at the cross? Yes, he did, right? What does it is finished mean? Tedelestai, which means paid in full. Your sins have been paid in full. Doesn't that mean full atonement was made for my sin at the cross 2,000 years ago? Yes. Isn't that true that all my guilt was canceled at the moment he hung on the cross and said paid in full? Doesn't mean, doesn't it mean my sins, past, present, and future are all taken care of? The answer is yes. Yes. And again, it's yes. Those verses are very true for every one of us. You are forgiven for your sins. You are no longer guilty before God. You have the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. There is, Romans chapter 8, 1, 8 verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for you because you are in Christ. Like there is no judgment on, on Noah and his family because they were in the ark, there is no judgment on you because you are in Christ. If you are in Christ, all of those verses are true for you. However, we are told to not know a hidden prey. Forgive us, God. In 1 John 1, 9, it says, If we confess our sins, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I want you to consider what how this word for David. Uh, King David committed adultery with Bathsheba. Nathan comes to him, of course, then he kills Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, in order to be hide it. And then, to hide his sin, then comes Nathan, the prophet, says, you think you hid it? <laughs> no, not to God. He knows what you've done. Of course, David repents. But here in 2 Samuel 12, 13, David said to Nathan, the moment the prophet said, hey, you committed adultery and then he killed the woman's husband. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Immediately he admits. And the prophet Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. God has put your sin away. And then after Nathan confirmed with David that his sin was put away, his sin was dealt with, David prays this prayer. Psalm 51 verse 1, Have mercy upon me, O God. According to your steadfast love. I thought he had mercy on him. Anyway, have mercy upon me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgression. David, it's been put away. Blot out my transgression. David, it's gone. Blot it out, God. It's gone. Blot it out. I beg for mercy, God. You see that? So here's a clear example that David asked God to forgive him after he was already forgiven. For instance, ask God for what you need, even though he already knows what you need. Come to him like that persistent woman knocking on the door. God, God, I pray for healing, I pray for healing, I pray for healing. Knowing that God has already decided all things. God wants you to keep coming to him. I want you to think of it this way. And here's the answer. Watch this quick. David's sin was dealt with, was it not? His sin was dealt with. But now David, the sinner, needed to be dealt with. Because that man has a conscience. That man has a memory. That man has a heart. That man used to have joy. That man used to have peace. So yes, David's sin was dealt with. But now David, the man, the sinner, needs to be dealt with. David prayed and asked God to forgive him because he needed assurance and confirmation that he is completely forgiven. Now, let me tell you what we do. This is what we do. We sin against God, and then we feel like garbage for day one. Day two, feel a little bit better. Day three, we want, we want that guilt to ride us and to make, to make it because this is our punishment, right? And then by day seven or 14, or a year later, two years later, so yeah, no, I, I, I felt really bad for a long time. Up, Good, I'm forgiven now. So what we do is we use time and guilt as a means to stroke our consciences and says, okay, now you can start feeling better now. It's been, a, it's been long enough. That's what we do. 
Instead, David goes to God and he says, God, I need assurance and confirmation that I'm completely forgiven. God, forgive me. He needed his sin to be blotted out of his conscience. He needed the effects of forgiveness to be realized in the form of peace and restoration and intimacy with God. I've given you this example so many times. If you are a parent and you have a child and your child violates your trust and your child violates your goodness and your child violates the provision and the opportunities that you bring him, do you guys walk around your house like nothing ever happened? No. Somebody goes, maybe I do. Okay, well then let's use another example. Husband and wife. <laughs> let's say the husband violates the wife's trust and violates the wife's goodness and kindness. Do they just walk around the house like there's nothing? No. No. Are they divorced? No. Is their child no longer a child? No. He's still a child, but the intimacy is gone. They're still married, but the peace is gone. The joy is out the house. The relationship. What's necessary is repentance and forgiveness. Repentance and forgiveness. You see, missing the mark or sinning produces real effects in your life. Real effects. Yeah, but I'm under the blood. Yeah. Real effects. You can turn all you want, a blind eye, to your sin. It produces real effects in your life. A sin does not abandon the believer to hell forever because we all sin all the time. But sin in the life of a believer isn't nothing. It's something. It's something. It's a cancer. It does stuff to you. I mean, I can list them. It blinds you like it did Samson. It does a lot of things. Proverbs 26, 2 says this. Watch it. Like a fluttering sparrow or a darting swallow. You've seen those swallows just come. Some just hover. An undeserved curse does not come to rest. So no human can sin and remain unaffected. You can't be unaffected by giving yourself to what does not reflect God and not pay a price for it. So the question is, what does sin do to the believing Christian? What does sin do to you? Well, number one, it hardens your heart. Have you ever had a heart that was harder than what it is right now? Or is it harder now than what it used to be? You see, there's a, there's a fluctuation. Every night I pray for my kids. God, I pray that you soften their heart, soften their heart, soften their heart. The same sun ray, the same sun melts the wax while it's hardening the clay. That same sun. And I'm asking God, God, let my heart be that wax that's softened by you, not hardened by you. But sin is the thing that hardens it. We've run out of time. I would have gone through these verses, but the Bible is very clear. That's, that's why your heart is hard. It's because you're unrepentant sin. It destroys your confidence before the Lord. Let's not argue about that one. <laughs> How confident are you when you come to God right after you've made the biggest mistake of your life? <laughs> it destroys your intimacy with the Lord. Sin defiles your conscience. But here's a big one. Ongoing sin will sear your conscience. Like it'll make it callous, like those calluses on a hand that you no longer really have feeling. People who constantly live within a specific sin, they've become unfeeling towards that sin. They've become callous toward God. That's what sin does. So when we pray, God forgive us our sins, 
We can pray that prayer constantly because we are constantly sinning. We are consistently missing the mark some way, somehow, in a big way. But when we repent, we are in fact protecting ourselves from hardened hearts. We are protecting ourselves from lack of confidence before God. We are protecting ourselves from destroying the intimacy that we have with God. We are protecting our consciences from becoming seared. So yes, even though you are forgiven completely of your sin, your sin has been taken away. You, the sinner, need to be dealt with. You, the heart that's being hardened and becoming more calloused, and the conscience that's being, that needs to be dealt with. And how so? Repentance. Ask God to forgive you on a daily basis. A prayer would sound something like this, so let's close. Father God, even though I realize that my sins have been put away, that they've been buried with Christ, that they've been nailed to the cross, I, the sinner, need to be dealt with. I'm not demanding something I deserve. I'm asking for mercy, please, God. I need mercy so I can represent you in a more accurate way. Please forgive me from not reflecting your glory in the way that I made to reflect. I miss the mark completely. I miss the mark consistently. I miss the mark willfully and unwillfully, willingly and unwillingly. Please forgive me. Thus meaning, please stop the prosecution against my sin. The consequences hold them back, God. As I will now forgive others because I realize how much I am being forgiven. Lord, I pray with David, please restore my peace. Please, Lord, restore our intimacy. Please, Lord, assure me of my forgiveness. Confirm with me by filling me with joy again. Help me feel forgiven, God. Blot out the stain, not just in your book of life, but blot out the stain of my sin from my own conscience. Soften my heart, God. Restore my confidence before you. Restore our intimacy. I beg you, God, for this mercy. I love you, Lord. Amen. Amen.